coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field. It's the Derek Izzy Show. Welcome to the Derek Izzy Show. I am the aforementioned host, Mr. Izzy, and I want to thank Moses Ronald for that beautiful introduction. You're welcome, boss. I love my job. I love what I do, making the magic behind the scenes. All right. Thank you, Moses. And today's show is brought to you by Uber. If you've never heard of Uber... Uber is an innovative taxi service. You can use it in any big city as they're rapidly expanding across the USA and the world. All you have to do is download the free app to your phone, and then when you need a ride somewhere, you just call up the app. It will tell you how far away the nearest driver is, usually two minutes, three minutes, ten minutes, and then you just request a ride. Driver will show up, pick you up, and take you where you need to go. If you use the discount code on the show, it is 5LX9E. Now what you do is you just type that in. When you request your first ride, there's a section in there where you can type in the discount code 5LX9E. That's the number 5, L as in Lewis, X as in Xerox, the number 9, and then E as in elephant. And that will get you your first ride for free. If your first ride is over $20, then it gets you $20 off your first ride. Uber, the innovative taxi service. Download it. Use the Uber X, Uber XL, Uber Black Car, or Uber SUV, and you can get different types of services. Uber X is the economy service. In the Dallas-Fort Worth market, it's trending at $0.90 a mile, $0.15 a minute, which is going to be about half the price of any taxi cab service. Hey, uh, Moses, you ever use Uber? No, actually I haven't. Usually when I need to go places, I just drive and, and get there. Okay, well, Uber is designed for people that don't want to make the drive. If you're going out to a bar, to a restaurant, and you know that you're going to be drinking, take Uber. It will get you there safe, it will get you home safe, and it's inexpensive. Use that discount code 5LX9E, get $20 off your first ride. Because you heard it here on the Derek Izzy Show. And now, on to the topic of today's podcast. One of the most popular movies of recent times is American Sniper, the story of Chris Kyle. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that movie. I've seen it. I was impressed by it. I thought it was a great movie. The audience in the theater was captivated throughout the entire movie, as well was I. And at the end of the movie, the audience, you could see the emotion on everyone's face as they walked out of the theater. It was a very silent time at the end of the movie. Moses, have uh, have you seen that? Have you seen the American Sniper? Yeah, 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 I saw it. I thought it was it was a good movie. Um, I I watched the whole thing. What, what was your favorite part? 
much popcorn too. Oh, that was that was so good. I I ate the whole the whole thing myself. The popcorn? It was very very good. Yeah, yeah, I I had a good time. All right, well, good good for you, Moses. As usual, you got some good colorful colorful comments, but thank you for doing our our show introduction and being a part of the team as we move on to the topic of today's podcast. Just to give you a little bit of trivia here, something you may not know, the longest confirmed sniper kill was not Chris Kyle. It was someone named Craig Harrison, November of 2009, Corporal of Horse in the Blues and Royals, British Army. He shot and killed two Taliban machine gunners consecutively at a range of 2,475 meters, 2,707 yards, using a long-range rifle. Now, in order to make a shot like this, you need perfect weather conditions. Mr. Harrison mentions in reports that the environmental conditions were perfect for long-range shooting. No wind, mild weather, clear visibility, And in order to do this, the sniper needs a good spotter. Now, the spotter from American Sniper was not really highlighted in in, in much of the movie. If you talk to Craig Harrison about his shot, he'll tell you it took about nine shots for him and his spotter to initially range the target successfully. So the topic of today's podcast is a sniper. However, he's not a sniper most Americans have heard of. He was a veteran of World War I, so if you paid attention in history class, it's possible that you heard his name before, but I doubt it. The sniper of today's podcast was born in 1887 in Pall Mall, Tennessee. Came from a very poor family. He was born in a two-room log cabin. In his family, there were 11 children. They were very poor. The mother actually knitted their clothes because they couldn't afford to buy clothes. The father ran the family farm and also was a blacksmith to earn some supplemental income. The boys in the family attended school for only nine months, and then the father took them out of school and had them work on the family farm and hunt small game in order to feed the family. In 1911, his father died. Now, our subject has no father a very poor family, so he helped his mother raise the younger siblings. At the time, he was the oldest sibling who still resided in that county, since his two older brothers had married and relocated. He worked in the railroad, and he also worked as a logger. Everybody said he was a very skilled worker, devoted to the welfare of his family, but he was also known as an alcoholic who was prone to fighting in saloons and had been arrested several times. Despite this history of fighting and drinking, he attended church regularly and often led in the hymn singing. In 1914, something happened to him that changed his life. After the death of one of his best friends in a bar fight and realizing that if he continued down his current path, he would probably end up having the same fate. He joined the Church of Christ in Christian Union. This was a Protestant denomination that was very pacifist. 
They were against war and didn't support any type of violence. So in 1917, at the age of 29, our subject registered for the draft, as did all men who were between 21 and 31 years of age. However, when he registered, he registered claiming he was a conscientious objector. On his draft card, his initial claim was in writing and said, yes, don't want to fight. However, this claim was rejected. He appealed and was rejected again, and he was drafted into World War I. Drafted into the United States Army, serving under Company G, the 328th Infantry Regiment, 82nd Infantry Division, Camp Gordon, Georgia. Now, being a pacifist and going through training, he spoke with his company commander at length, explaining how he didn't want to fight and that he believed in God and God had taught him pacifism. He didn't feel that going to war was something that he or supporters of his faith could do. But in the end, he turned out to be one of the greatest war heroes of all time. This war hero's claim to fame happened at the Battle of Argonne in 1918. In order to tell this story properly, I'm going to read some clips from his diary. Yes, he kept a diary. He kept a diary of every day that he spent in World War I, and he chronicled a lot of events, and now we have his personal record of everything that happened. October 8th, 1918, Argonne Forest, France. He says, So on the morning of the 8th, just before daylight, we started for the hill of Chatel Chihiri. So before we got there, it got light, and the Germans sent over a heavy barrage and also gas, and we put on our gas masks and just pressed right on through the shells and got on top of Hill 223 to where we was to start over the top at 6.10 a.m. And they was to give us a barrage. So the time came, and no barrage, and we had to start without one. So as we started over the top at 6.10 a.m., and the Germans was putting their machine guns to work all over the hill in front of us, on our left and right, so I was in support, and I could see my pals getting picked off until it almost looked like there was none left. This was our first offensive battle in the Argonne. My battalion was one of the attacking battalions. My platoon was the second. We were in support of the first. We advanced just a few yards behind them. We got through the shells and the gas all right and occupied Hill 223, which was to be our jumping off place for the advance on the railroad. When the zero hour came, we went over the top and started our advance. We had to charge across a valley several hundred yards wide and rush the machine gun emplacements on the ridge on the far side. And there were machine guns on the ridges on our flanks, too. It was kind of a triangular-shaped valley, so you see we were getting it from the front and both flanks. Well, the first and second waves got halfway across the valley and then were held up by machine gun fire from all three sides. It was awful. Our losses were very heavy. The advancement was stopped, and we were ordered to dig in. I don't believe our whole battalion or even our whole division could have taken those machine guns by a straightforward attack. 
The Germans got us, and they got us right smart. They just stopped us dead in our tracks. It was hilly country and plenty of brush, and they had plenty of machine guns entrenched along those commanding ridges. I'm telling you, they were shooting straight. Our boys just went down like long grass before the mowing machine at home. And to make matters worse, something had happened to artillery and we had no barrage. So our attack just faded out. And there we were, lying down about halfway across and no barrage. And those German machine guns and big shells getting us hard. I just knew that we couldn't go on again until those machine guns were mopped up. So we decided to try and get them by a surprise attack in the rear. We figured there must have been over 30 of them, and they were hidden on the ridges about 300 yards in front and on the left of us. So there were 17 of us boys went around on the left flank to see if we couldn't put those guns out of action. We went around and fell in behind the guns. We first saw two Germans with Red Cross bands on their arms, so we asked them to stop, and they did not. So one of the boys shot at them, and they ran back to our right. So we all run after them. Sergeant Harry Parsons gave the command to what was left of our squads. My squad, Corporal Savage's squad, Corporal Early's, and Corporal Cutting's to go around the brush and try to make a surprise attack. According to orders, we advanced through our front line, on through the brush, and up the hill on the left. We went very quietly and quickly. We had to. And we took care to keep well to our left. Without any losses and in right smart time, we were across the valley and on the hill where the machine guns were emplaced. The brush and the hilly nature of the country hid us from the Germans. We were nearly 300 yards in front of our own front line. When we figured we were on top of the hill and on their left flank, we had a little conference. Some of the boys wanted to attack from the flank, but Early and I and some of the others thought it would be best to go right on over the hill and jump them from the rear. We decided on the rear attack. We opened up in skirmishing order and flitting from brush to brush, quickly crossed over the hill and down into the gully behind. Then we suddenly swung around behind them the first Germans we saw were two men with red cross bands on their arms, the two men from before. They jumped out of the brush right in front of us and bolted like two scared rabbits. We called to them to surrender, and one of our boys fired and missed. And they kept on going. We wanted to capture them before they gave the alarm. We were now well behind the German trench and in the rear of the machine guns that were holding up our big advance. We were in the deep brush and we couldn't see the Germans, and they couldn't see us. But we could hear their machine guns shooting something awful. Savage's squad was leading, and mine. Early's and Cutting's followed. And when we jumped across a little stream of water that was there, there was about 15 or 20 Germans jumped up and threw up their hands and said, Comrade! So the one in charge of us boys told us not to shoot. They was going to give up anyway. It was headquarters. There were orderlies, stretcher-bearers, and runners, and a major and two other officers. They were just having breakfast, and there was a mess of beefsteaks, jellies, jams, and loaf bread around. They were unarmed, all except the major. We jumped them right smart and covered them, and told them to throw up their hands and keep them up, and they did. I guess they thought the whole American army was in their rear, but we didn't stop to tell them anything different.
No shots were fired, and there was no talking between us, except when we told them to put them up. By this time, some of the Germans from on the hill were shooting at us. Well, I was giving them the best I had. And by this time, the Germans had got their machine guns, turned around, and fired on us. So they killed six and wounded three of us. That just left eight. So we had a hard battle for a little while. I don't know whether it was a German major, but one yelled something out in German that we couldn't understand. And then the machine guns on top swung around and opened fire on us. There were about 30 of them. They were commanding us from a hillside less than 30 yards away. They couldn't miss, and they didn't. They killed all of Savage's squad. They got all of mine but two. They wounded Cutting and killed two of his squad. An early squad was well back in the brush on the extreme right, not yet under direct fire of the machine guns, so they escaped. All except Early. He went down with three bullets in his body. That left me in command. I was right out there, in the open. And those machine guns were spitting fire and cutting down the undergrowth all around me something awful. And the Germans were yelling orders. You never heard such a racket in all your life. I didn't have time to dodge behind a tree or dive into the brush. I didn't even have time to kneel or lie down. I don't know what the other boys were doing. They claimed they didn't fire a shot. They said afterwards they were on the right guarding the prisoners, and the prisoners were lying down and the machine guns had to shoot over them to get me. As soon as machine guns opened fire on me, I began to exchange shots with them. I had no time, no how, to do nothing but watch them German machine gunners and give them the best I had. Every time I see a German, I just touched them off. At first, I was shooting from a prone position, that is, lying down, just like we often shoot at the targets in the shooting machines in the mountains of Tennessee. And it was just about the same distance, but the targets here were bigger. I just couldn't miss a German's head or body at that distance, and I didn't. Besides, it weren't no time to miss know-how. I knowed that in order to shoot me, the Germans would have to get their heads up to see where I was lying. And I knowed that my only chance was to keep their heads down. And I done done it. I covered their positions and let fly every time I seed anything to shoot at. Every time a head come up, I done knocked it down. Then they would sort of stop for a moment, and then another head would come up, and I would knock it down too. I was giving them the best I had. I was right out in the open. The machine guns were spitting fire and cutting up all around me something awful. But they didn't seem to be able to hit me. All the time, the Germans were shouting orders. You never heard such a racket in all your life. Of course, all of this only took a few minutes. As soon as I was able, I stood up and begun to shoot offhand, which is my favorite position. I was still sharpshooting with that their old army rifle... I used several clips. The barrel was getting hot. My rifle ammunition was running low. Or it was just so hard for me to get at it quickly. But I kept on shooting just the same. In the middle of the fight, a German officer and five men done jumped out of a trench and charged me with fixed bayonets. They had about 25 yards to come, and they were coming right smart. I only had about half a clip left in my rifle, but I had my pistol ready. I done flipped it out fast and touched them off too. I touched off the sixth man first, then the fifth, then the fourth, then the third, and so on. That's the way we shoot wild turkeys at home. You see, we don't want the front ones to know we're getting the back ones, 
and then they keep coming until we've got them all. Of course, I hadn't time to think of that. I guess I just naturally did it. I know, too, that if the front ones wavered, or if I stopped them, the rear ones would drop down and pump a volley into me and get me. Then I returned to the rifle and kept it right on after those machine guns. I knowed now that if I done kept my head and didn't run out of ammunition, I had them. So I done hollered to him to come down and give up. I didn't want to kill any more than I had to. I would touch a couple of them off and holler again, but I guess they couldn't understand my language, or else they couldn't hear me in the awful racket that was going all around. Over 20 Germans were killed by this time, and I got a hold of the German major. After he seed me stop the six Germans who charged with the fixed bayonets, he got up off the ground and walked over to me and yelled, English? I said, no, not English. He said, what? I said, American. He said, good. Then he said, if you won't shoot any more, I will make them give up. I'd killed over 20 before the German major said he would make them give up. I covered him with my automatic and told him if he didn't make them stop firing, I would take off his head next. And he knew I meant it. He told me if I didn't kill him, and if I stopped shooting the others in the trench, he would make them surrender. So he blew a little whistle, and they came down and began to gather around and throw down their guns and belts. All but one of them came off the hill with their hands up. And just before that one got to me, he threw a little hand grenade which burst in the air in front of me. I had to touch him off. The rest surrendered without any more trouble. There were nearly 100 of them. So we had about 80 or 90 Germans there disarmed and had another line of Germans to go through to get out. So I called for my men and one of them answered from behind a big oak tree and the others were on my right in the brush. So I said, let's get these Germans out of here. And one of my men said, it is impossible. So I said, no, let's get them out. So when my man said that, this German major said, How many have you got? And I said, Oh, I've got plenty, and pointed my pistol at him. In this battle, I was using a rifle and a Colt 45 automatic pistol, so I lined the Germans up in a line of twos, and I got between the ones in front, and I had the German major before me, so I marched them straight into those other machine guns, and I got them. The German major could speak English as well as I could. Before the war, he used to work in Chicago. And I told him to keep his hands up and to line up his men in columns of twos and to do it in double time. And he did it. And I lined up my men that were left on either side of the column and I told one to guard the rear. I ordered the prisoners to pick up and carry our wounded. I wasn't going to leave any good old American boys laying out there to die. So I made the Germans carry them. And they did. And I taken the major and placed him at the head of the column and I got behind him and used him as a screen. I poked the automatic in his back and told him to hike, and he hiked. The major suggested we go down a gully, but I knew that was the wrong way. I told him we were not going down any gully. We were going straight through the German front line trenches back to the American lines. It was their second line that I had captured. We sure did get a long way behind the German trenches, and so I marched them straight at that old German front line trench and some more machine guns swung around and began to spit at us. I told the Major to blow his whistle, or I would take off his head and theirs too. 
So he blew his whistle, and they all surrendered, except one. I made the major order him to surrender twice, but he wouldn't. I had to touch him off. I hated to do it. I've been doing a tolerable lot of thinking about it since. He was probably a brave soldier boy, but I couldn't afford to take any chances, so I had to let him have it. There was considerably over a hundred prisoners now. It was a problem to get them back safely to our own lines. There were so many of them, there was a danger of our own artillery mistaking us for a German counterattack and opening up on us. I sure was relieved when we run into the relief squads that had been sent forward through the brush to help us. On the way back, we were constantly under heavy shell fire, and I had to double-time them to get through safely. There was nothing to be gained by having any more of them wounded or killed. They had done surrendered to me, and it was up to me to look after them, and so I'd done done it. So when I got back to my major's PC, I had 132 prisoners. We marched those German prisoners on back into American lines to the battalion PC. And there we came to the intelligence department. Lieutenant Woods came out and counted 132 prisoners. And then he counted them and said, York, have you captured the whole German army? And I told him I had a tolerable few. We were ordered to take them out to headquarters. And from there, turn them over to military police. On the way back, we were constantly under heavy shell fire, and I had to double-time them to get through safely. There was nothing to be gained by having any more of them wounded or killed. I had orders to report to Brigadier General Lindsay, and he said to me, Well, York, I hear you've captured the whole German army. I told him I only had 132. After a short talk, he sent us to some artillery kitchens, where we had a good warm meal, and it sure felt good. Then we rejoined our outfits and fought with them through to our objective. Those were excerpts straight from our subject's diary and his account of the war. As you can see, this man was truly a war hero out of World War I. A sniper who ended up leading his troops against unstoppable odds to capture 132 German soldiers. As a reward for his efforts, our subject received the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, the World War I Victory Medal, American Campaign Medal, the Legion of Honor Award from France, and several other awards from France, Italy, and Montenegro. Seven public buildings have been named for this soldier, including a veterans hospital located in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. If you haven't guessed, the topic of today's podcast was Alvin York, sniper and war hero from World War One. I want to thank everyone for listening. Thanks to the new listeners of the show. I know we've got a lot of new audience members for 2015. And thanks to Uber. Uber is a sponsor of the show. Don't forget to use their discount code 5LX9E when you use Uber to get your taxi service. One last thing before I sign off is that we are looking for new sponsors to the show and also looking into expanding into other types of podcasts. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor of the show and the Derek Izzy Network, 
We've got lots of different advertising packages available to suit your individual business needs, whether that be local to the Dallas-Fort Worth area or national or even worldwide, because our podcast is now reaching audiences all over the world. If you have questions or you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, just shoot an email to Derek at DerekIzzy.com. I have a staff that reads over every single email. If there's anything interesting, they forward it to my attention. To become an advertiser and sponsor of the show, you must email Derek at DerekIzzy.com. Someone will be in touch with you and show you what we have to offer here on The Derek Izzy Show. Good day.